Amen. Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Acts chapter 17 will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, If you've been with us, you know the ground we have covered last week. Uh, We looked at the Apostle Paul continuing to face trials and suffering and persecution uh, during his missionary journeys. If you remember there in Acts 16, that's where uh, he and Silas were beaten uh, very severely and then put in prison. And, and I described last week how they were in those stocks and just constant pain. Uh, but you noticed last week as we looked at that text that Paul's response to suffering in the book of Acts was to sing hymns, to praise God, uh, and to continue to share the gospel. And that's really the trend you see in Acts. In fact, when you look at Acts chapter 14, uh, that's when Paul was beaten to the point where people believed he was dead and they dragged him outside of the city and just left him there. They thought he was finished. Well, the Scripture says that not only was he not dead, that after he got up the very next day, he continued to proclaim the gospel. I share that, church, just today as a reminder to us. Uh, Most of us, in fact, I would probably guess all of us, will not face the same trials and tribulations that the Apostle Paul faced. Uh, I would imagine that probably no one in this room will be beaten today for the sake of the gospel. Uh, But we face other trials. We face other persecutions. We face other setbacks from our culture and our world. And and if we're not careful, what we do in light of those things is we just kind of throw in the towel. Uh, We back away. we, We give up. But what you notice here in the book of Acts is that no matter what Paul and others faced, they continued to press on in the mission of sharing the gospel with lost people. And I believe that's what God has called His church to do today. And so as we look to this text together, I hope you will be encouraged to do that very thing. I realize we live in a day and an age and and a time when things are changing very rapidly in our culture. And for many in the church... We're not quite sure how to respond to that yet. Uh, Some are withdrawing. Some are kind of fearful. They're not really sure what to do. I hope that in light of the Scripture today, you'll be encouraged uh, to move all the more quickly into our culture, into our world, with the Gospel. Because it's the only hope that we have. And it is a hope we need to share. Uh, So with that in mind, let's look to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. If you're able to, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand, uh, remembering this is God's holy Word. Uh, He has spoken it to us. He has spoken it to His church. And we need to respond to it. This is what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and On three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, 
these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And when the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father God, we pray that you would use this word in our lives today and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you might open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our minds to understand this gospel that's in front of us. And I pray you would turn our lives upside down through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you know the name William Carey. Uh, We refer to him as the father of modern missions. Carey lived about 200 years ago. Uh, He was born and spent the early part of his life there in England, but he spent the last 41 years of his life in India as a missionary there. In fact, he died in India. Uh, uh, Carey, as a missionary in India during his day, was very unique. People weren't going to the world with the gospel, especially to places that were as difficult to get to 200 years ago as India. Uh, But Carey did this because he was compelled to take the gospel to the nations. But before he ever got on a boat and went to India, Carey understood he was a missionary. And so there, uh, in his hometown, where he was a humble shoe repairman, uh, he saw himself as a missionary. In fact, every day, he lived with this mission. He said, I will intentionally introduce people to Jesus Christ. And so whether he was working on someone's shoes in his hometown, or he was on the other side of the world in India, that's what he did. When he was there in his shoe store, he would look for opportunities to talk with people about the gospel. And just about every person who came into that shoe store heard Carrie talk to them about Jesus. On one occasion, one of his friends who wasn't a believer said to him, William, in doing this, you're, you're going to ruin your business. This is what Carrie said to him. My business is advancing the kingdom of God. I sell shoes to pay expenses. See, what Carrie understood was that that God had called him and called every follower of Christ to be a missionary, that his role, his responsibility was to tell people about Jesus. That was his mission. It was to advance the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 17, uh, there's no confusion for Paul and Silas and others. Their mission is to advance the kingdom of God. No matter what trial, no matter what obstacle was in their way, they were going to do that. In fact, you'll notice in today's text that in doing that, their opposition, those who opposed, were opposed to what they were doing, that they make one of the clearest, most accurate statements about Paul and the other missionaries that's ever been made. You remember what they say to them there? They say, these men have turned the world upside down. What was happening there was not anything special about Paul or Silas. What was happening there was the the gospel was changing the world. You look at our world today, and it would seem that it's turned upside down on its own. (laughs) And it is. You go back to the garden and the fall and sin, and everything is twisted and upside down from what it should be. And the beauty of the gospel is, it comes in and it turns things right side up. And so today, as we talk about this passage, I want you to to consider 
wherever you are today, if you're a student in a local school, if you're in a workplace, if you run a business, if you're retired, whatever stage of life you may be in, how can God use you where you are today as a missionary to advance his kingdom? How can he use you where you are today to literally do what Paul and Silas and others were doing to, to change the world? As we do that, we need to understand a couple of things, beginning with the first point I've put there in your notes. If we're going to change the world, we need to know the word. You notice here in Acts chapter 17 that, that Paul goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. In our last discussion in chapter 16, Paul had gone to a river. He had found some women praying. What, what he did there was because there was likely no synagogue in the city. But his custom was to go to the synagogue and to begin to talk to people about the scriptures. And that's significant when you think about Paul. Because if anyone had a story to tell, uh, it was the apostle Paul. I mean, think about Paul's testimony. He's going to persecute Christians. He has this dramatic conversion to the faith, you would think that that's what Paul would share about. I mean, consider if something like that were to happen today. Uh, so, Roy Drake, who's wide awake right now, he really is. Uh, Roy is an upstanding member of our community. Uh, he served as chairman of the deacons many times. He loves to get up uh, on the roof and fix things here. Great guy. But let's just imagine Roy was the town reprobate. And when people heard Roy Drake's name, they just associated that with all kinds of wickedness and evil. And Jackie was always calling everybody around town looking for Roy. Have you seen Roy? I don't know where Roy's at. And Roy's stumbling home one night like he always does. And all of a sudden, he sees a glaring light. And then he hears the voice of Jesus saying to him, Roy Drake, repent and convert. And he does. And then, rather than being known as the town reprobate, he's known as this strong follower of Christ. And he comes here to Bloomfield Baptist Church, and, and we dunk him two or three times just to make sure. And, and then people say, man, we, we've heard about what's happened to Roy Drake. What would we do with that? Well, we might say, hey, come, come to church next week. Roy's going to get up and he's going to share a story. We, well, we might send Roy and Jackie out on a few crusades. Go, go tell everybody about what's happened to you. That, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? When, when people have this radical conversion to the faith, we, we just want to tell their story. They put it in books and sell them. We, we put them on the radio. We put them out in front of stadiums full of people. And what do they do? They tell their story of what God did in their life. But notice what the Apostle Paul does. Paul, as Luke records it in the book of Acts, doesn't really say a whole lot about what's happened to him. Now, there'll be places and there'll be occasions for that in the book of Acts. But when he comes here to the synagogue, rather than saying, hey, listen to what God did, listen to how I saw this light, listen to all these things that the Lord did in my life, Paul simply opens up the Scriptures and shares them with people around him. And friends, I believe that's what we need to do as well. And so if you are like many who think, well, well, I don't have a dramatic Roy Drake testimony. You know, I just have an average old testimony. I was nine years old and walked an aisle. Friends, you don't, you don't need to have a dramatic testimony to tell people about the gospel. What you need to tell, what you need in order to tell people about the gospel, is you need the gospel. <laughs> that is where the power is. Notice what Paul does here. In verse 2 it says, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
Uh, that, that Greek word for reasoned is dialegomai. It's where we get our translated word dialogue. And so that helps you understand what it means. In reasoning, he was having a dialogue with people. He was discussing with them. In fact, that Greek word means to present intelligent arguments and to discuss. That tells us two things about what Paul was doing here. One, uh, Paul was opening his mouth. (laughs) Uh, Paul did not go to the synagogues and say, well, I just want everybody to look at how I live, and then maybe you'll look and see my life, and then by seeing my life, you'll just want to know all about Jesus. Paul didn't do that. Paul went and shared the word because that's what we need to do. Share the word. But we've been so influenced by thoughts like this. Maybe you've heard this quote. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And that's often attributed to Francis of Assisi. The reality is, historians have looked, he never said anything like that. In fact, he preached the gospel a lot. On some occasions, he would preach as many as five sermons a day. But the reason we say that is we, we kind of like this notion of actions speak louder than words. I mean, look around. We've seen so many hypocrites in the church who stand up and say one thing and then leave and go live another way. And so we've, we've kind of, the scale's kind of tilted to this notion that, well, I really need to back up what I say. And that sometimes I don't even say anything. I just need to live a certain way. And so in our culture, you hear people say, actions speak louder than words. But here's the thing. When it comes to the gospel, nothing speaks louder than the word of God. If the eternity of billions of people today is dependent on my life and your life aligning perfectly with God's word, that's not good. There's no good news there. If our gospel message to the world is, look at how I live and be like me, it's not going to save anybody. No, the hope of the nations today is the spoken word. It is the gospel. It is for us to share. That's what Paul does when he reasons. And notice also, as I mentioned before, the definition that he was using intelligent arguments. Friends, a lot of times when we open up our mouth and talk about our faith, we, we don't give very intelligent arguments. In fact, a lot of us have become accustomed to just kind of throwing out these little Christian zingers and Christian bumper stickers and Christian mottos thinking, well, we really proved our point there. (laughs) But notice what Paul's doing here. He is having a dialogue. That means he is listening as well as speaking. Friends, if I go out to our community today and I say, tell me about Christians, and I start asking non-Christians to describe Christians... Chances are they're probably not going to say to me, you know, Christians are some of the best listeners I've ever been around. No, they they know us by what we say, not so much by our listening. And this is an important thing in our culture today. Because people are so lost, and, and their mindset is so far away from a biblical worldview, just to get to the point of having a discussion about the gospel, we need to start by, by listening to them. One of the most effective evangelistic opportunities I had when Sandy and I were serving at the campus of Western Kentucky University was, was an opportunity where we listened. We put up flyers on campus and did this at campuses all over the country and said, hey, we'd like to give you free pizza. Imagine, you know, most students, even some of us preachers, we like free pizza. And so put up free pizza posters and on there just said, uh, we want you to come tell us 
uh, what you don't like about Christians. And so we would meet different dorms on campus, and, and sure enough, students would show up uh, hungry, and they'd eat pizza. And you could tell they were kind of looking for the catch, the twist. Now, what's really going on here? And then one of us would get up and just say, okay, we appreciate you guys coming tonight, uh, and we would just like to, to hear from you. We're not going to respond. We'd just like you to tell us uh, things you don't like about Christians, things you don't like about Christianity, qu- concerns you have. And, and they'd just go at it. And we wouldn't respond. We wouldn't refute. We wouldn't defend. And then at the end of our time, we'd say, okay, guys, uh, next week, same time, same place, we'll buy you free pizza again, and we want you to tell us again what you don't like about Christians. And so we'd get together. And we do it another week and another week. And you know what would happen time after time, campus after campus, is after one or two weeks of this, students who were adamantly opposed to the gospel would eventually say, why are you doing this? No Christian has ever asked me what I think about something. And what is it you believe? And then we had a dialogue and a discussion. And then we were able to start talking about God's word in the faith. It gave us that opportunity because we listen. One of the greatest evangelistic opportunities you and I have begins with listening to lost people. I believe that's what Paul was doing here in addition to speaking the word to them. The scripture also says, verse 3, he was explaining the gospel. Uh, That Greek word for explaining means he was opening what had once been closed. In fact, it's the same word used to describe when a newborn baby opens up their eyes for the first time. It's this idea of something that had been closed up until that point suddenly opening. This week, some of you who are on social media, Facebook, you may have read, I posted on there Sandy and I's story about our experiences with Caroline, or at least one of those. In response to the Planned Parenthood videos, a number of people are sharing their story and, and why we need to value life. And It may come as a surprise to some of you, probably not to most of you, but one of the causes for abortion in our country today is when there's a pre-diagnosis that there may be a syndrome, there may be a special condition with that child, and so parents are counseled and told, uh, basically, uh, you, you don't want to put your child through this, you don't want to put yourself through this, and lives are ended. And so ours was one of many voices that said, well, well, God has purpose in this. And so as I shared that story, uh, one of the things I shared was that uh, when Caroline was four weeks old, uh, the, the doctors told us that she couldn't hear, uh, that she was completely deaf. And, and, uh, and uh, Sandy and I both asked lots of questions, and finally this one medical professional very bluntly just said, you know, listen, your child's never going to say mama and never going to say daddy. Well, if you saw the video I posted, if you've been around my child for 10 seconds, you know she says mama, daddy, and everything else now. <laughs> God miraculously just worked there, and we're very thankful. But it was, it was a hard day when we got that news. And I remember that night, uh, Sandy and I stayed up, and we were watching all these videos on the Internet because uh, we, we didn't know anything up till then about cochlear implants. And, and we had kind of been given uh, the thought that, you know, she's just never going to hear. And so we're starting to look at all these opportunities. And if you've seen, and many people have now, these videos where, where people who are deaf, sometimes it's kids, sometimes it's middle-aged adults, they can receive uh, these cochlear implants, and, and many times they'll take videos of when the person hears for the first time. And if you've not seen one of those, it, it, is, it is miraculous to watch. Someone who up until that point in their life could not hear anything. They were deaf to everything in the world. 
And then at the flip of a switch, their ears are opened. And all of a sudden they can hear. And the expressions on their face, the excitement, show their response to that. It's as if they're jumping up saying, I can hear now. When Paul was opening the Scriptures to people, that's what Luke says is happening. He says he's reasoning with them in the Scriptures, and all of a sudden, they can understand it. And it makes sense to them, and their eyes are open to see it, and their ears to hear. And friends, that's, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are here this morning, and honestly, your, your ears are closed. Your, your eyes are closed. I'm not talking about you're taking a nap. I'm saying... You can't see this. You don't, you don't get this. You don't know why many of us are so excited about this. And my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would do what the Holy Spirit was doing here in Acts 17. That, that the switch would come on. That you might hear the only hope that we have that comes through the gospel of Jesus. And that's what's happening here as Paul is explaining the gospel People are beginning to understand. And then the scripture says that all of a sudden they're, they're responding to it. Verse 3 goes on to say that, that Paul was proving the gospel to them. That, that, that word means he was laying out all this evidence. And in fact it says that he was doing this from the scriptures in order to help them understand the suffering and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. You see the Jews in Paul's day, much like the Jews today, their notion, their understanding of the Messiah had nothing to do with suffering. So this whole idea that Christ had suffered didn't make sense to them because they didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer. And so you ask a devout Jew today about what, what, what he understands about the Messiah, how, how the Jewish people would know when the Messiah comes. They won't say anything to you about suffering. And so what Paul does is say, well, well, let's go back here. And, and so we don't know. Luke doesn't say here's all the passages he shared. And so we have to kind of imagine what he might have shared. I, I imagine he might have gone all the way back to Genesis and said, remember what, what Moses wrote down under the inspiration of the Spirit? God creates perfection. Man rebels. Uh, you and I, we've been rebelling ever since. All people rebel. If at the end of the service today I say, Hey, uh, anyone here who has lived a perfect life and never sinned can come down forward. Apparently, Amber, Amber Joe has. She was already coming. Other than Amber Joe, If I said, listen, anybody who's lived just a, a perfect life, you've never sinned, you've never done anything wrong, you're, you're flawless, you're perfect, come, come on down front. I, I don't think anybody would come. If you did, you'd be a liar, you know, so we'd know you were a sinner. None of us are perfect. We, we've all fallen short of God's holiness, His glory. And that goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve's sin against a holy God. And so there, perhaps Paul said, do you remember? Do you remember what, what Moses wrote? Genesis 3.15? What, what God said to the serpent, to the enemy? He said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There, God was giving the gospel to us all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And He was saying, a Redeemer will come, a Redeemer will suffer, but ultimately, the Redeemer will crush the head of the enemy. 
And then perhaps Paul just walked through the Scriptures and took them to places like Psalm 22. You read Psalm 22, that, that, that's the Gospel. It's all over it. It is the sufferings of Christ in great detail before Christ went to the cross. They're saying things like Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's exactly what happens when Jesus is on the cross. And perhaps Paul then took them to places like Isaiah 53, which describes not only the suffering of Jesus, but the purpose of the suffering of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What Isaiah is saying there is that there's going to be a sacrifice one day that's going to atone for man's sin. See, see up until that point, and even when Paul was speaking to these Jews, their mindset was a sacrificial system. We sin, we make a sacrifice. We, the blood of a goat, the blood of a lamb, something has to atone for our sin, and yet God had told them as much as they need to do this, this doesn't cut it. This will never cover your sin. And so perhaps Paul says, okay, listen, think about this for a second. We've rebelled against God. God says, do these things to atone for sin. And then he says, none of that's going to atone for sin. But one day a perfect lamb's going to come and, and he's going to atone for our sin through his death on the cross. And in laying all this out, then Paul says, listen, that's the Messiah and the Messiah has come and the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And then perhaps Paul went on to share with them what we read about in his letter to the Romans. Similar audience. Perhaps he went through and said, listen, okay, you think about Adam and Eve, that's us. We've all sinned. And the requirement for sin, the debt for sin, is death. Blood must cover it. The wages of sin, he says in Romans 3.23, or all of sin, wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. And perhaps as he's walking through this, then he takes them to, but listen, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And that means for us this morning, God didn't wait till you cried out in desperation and said, Lord, save me for Jesus to go to the cross. Christ on the cross paid the debt that we owed for our sin. And as people are hearing this, much like we're hearing this today, for some, not only are they understanding it, they're beginning to believe it. See, it's, it's not enough for any of us this morning to know the gospel. Simply knowing the gospel doesn't save anyone. So you may be able to get gold star and Bible quiz and know everything about the Bible. You may be able to teach a Sunday school class. You may be able to get up here and preach a sermon. <laughs> but knowing the gospel doesn't save you. Paul says the only thing that saves you is a confession that Christ is Lord. And for Christ to be Lord of your life, that means you cannot be Lord of your life. Your life cannot have two lords. And what happens when we not only believe the gospel, but we respond that way is we repent. We turn from our sin and we turn to Christ because we understand he's our only hope. He indeed died for our sin and we must place our faith in him. And what happens here is Paul is sharing this message. And not everybody agrees with it. Not everybody responds, much like in our culture and our churches today. But the scripture says, some of them did. 
Verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Uh, Jews, Greeks, women, leading women in that, that synagogue, that culture, that city he was in, they were persuaded by the gospel. Have you been persuaded by the gospel? I'm not asking if you know it. I'm asking, have you responded to it in faith? See, if we're going to change the world, and we're going to take an upside-down world and turn it right side up, this is where it starts, friends. It's not going to be changed or saved by any political party. It's not going to be changed or saved by any law we pass. The only thing that will change and save our world today is for an internal transformation to take place where the gospel radically changes the heart of men, women, and children. And then that works its way out. And then everything changes. But you can't change the heart from the outside working in. Uh, Who we vote for, our politics lost, these are important things. But these are not the gospel. And we're very clearly called as Christians to share the gospel. But as we do, point two, we need to recognize that if we're going to be serious about this, about changing the world through the gospel, we will be hated. And I realize that sounds like strong language to some of you. You may think, well, that's just kind of overdoing it. And I mean, nobody really hates us, do they? Well, listen to what Jesus said. It's pretty good authority on these matters. Matthew chapter 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus was hated. Jesus was persecuted. I realize that we have kind of this common unbiblical notion of Jesus that he just walked around making everybody happy and performing some miracles and everybody just loved Jesus and so you'll hear that criticism today well I don't really like Christians but I love Jesus I wish everybody was just more like Jesus well if you read the gospels that tell us about Jesus you realize Jesus was he was he was hated and he says if we truly commit to him and follow him then we will be radically out of sync with the world And so if you live with this drive, this motivation to be accepted in our world today, you will have a serious crisis in your faith if you authentically have faith to begin with. We can't love the world and love Christ. If we belong to the world, we don't belong to Jesus. So so what does this hatred look like? Well, we see it here. The the Jews, again, not all the Jews, these are the unbelieving Jews, they, they respond, it says, not by standing up and saying, well, Paul, we hate you. <laughs> Paul, we, we hate Jesus. Paul, we, we hate the gospel. They don't do that. But people don't really do that today. Some might, but most people, when they don't agree with us, don't stand up and say, well, I hate Bloomfield Baptist Church. I, I hate that, Pastor Richard. I, I hate that gospel that's presented there. But they do much of what we see here. Paul says these unbelieving Jews, they, they, they go out, And they find some wicked men of the rabble. And you know what that phrase, wicked men of the rabble, is in the Greek? Wicked men of the rabble. You you don't need a definition for that. Pretty much says it. These are just wicked guys. These are the pre-converted reprobate Roy Drakes. That's what this is here. And they they don't go themselves and do anything. They just get these guys stirred up. 
And then they basically say, go attack the house of Jason, who presumably is where the disciples, were, the, uh, Paul and his friends were staying at. And so they just kind of get this mob all stirred up. Spoke several years ago to a friend who was a missionary, uh, part of his career in Central America, other parts South America, and he told me about how the greatest opposition he faced to the gospel in the area he was were religious people. <laughs> a different religious folks had gone into these areas. They had not presented the true gospel. They had presented man's gospel and man's tradition and man's religions. And, and this particular religion that was there was dominant. It wasn't gospel-centered. And, and it looked good on the outside, but much like Jesus said to the Pharisees, the that the inside was corrupt and rotten. And he said the greatest opposition he faced were the leaders in these religions down there. So they would go in and they would see people converted to faith in Christ and they would build churches and no sooner would they build them. Then these religious leaders would go around the towns, they'd gather up all the town drunks and they'd give them a whiskey bottle in one hand and a gas can and matches in the other hand. (laughs) And they'd say, well, if you want this whiskey then all you need to do is go burn down those churches. And that's what they'd do. They'd get them drunk, they'd send them out, and they'd go throughout that town, and they would just burn down those churches. These religious leaders didn't get up and say, we hate this, we hate that. They didn't do much. They just stirred people up. And in stirring them up, they lied to them. They say they believe this, they believe this. Well, that's not what they believe. Any more than we see here in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul and Silas weren't going around preaching that people needed a revolt against Caesar. Uh, They weren't going around uh, doing all these things that they were being accused of doing. But see, that's what the world does. That's what the hatred of the world looks like. It's not just this blunt, we hate Christians. It's this stirring up. It's this twisting of what we say. And so, for example, in recent days, there's been much said from believers, followers of Christ, about pro-life and what it means to be pro-life and what it means to value every life every life created in the image of God and so how does the world respond to that not by saying that they hate the gospel but by twisting what we say oh they're not really pro-life they hate women that's the message the world says to those who take a stand for life and so you take a stand for what the scripture says about marriage In Genesis, there's this very clear creation, establishment of one man, one woman in a covenant relationship in faith. Our culture's massively shifted away from that. And so when some of us stand up and say, listen, this is what we understand the Scripture to teach, the accusation is what? Well, that preacher, he just hates this group, or he hates these people, or he just hates this. And so what... The hatred of the world really looks like is trying to twist and turn what we proclaim and to say we're the ones that hate when they are. And this is why it's so important that we listen to Jesus and do what Jesus said. Because people hated Jesus, but he didn't respond in hate. And when people spin things and hate things about the faith today, We don't respond in hate. Jesus spoke about this a lot. For example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now let's be honest. For most of us in this room, 
If you're having a conversation and someone said, well, what would you do if that guy who didn't like what you had to say just came up and just popped you right on the right side of the face? Some of us might say things like, well, I'd get out of bat. That's why I wear a gun in the pulpit. and I don't today. That, that's not our natural impulse to turn the other cheek, is it? But there's a purpose to it. Jesus goes on. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, what's your natural response when you see a photograph of militant Islamic extremists with swords in their hand cutting off the heads of believers? Your response, my response in the flesh is we want to take those guys out. What does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And here's what he goes on to say. For if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Think about that. If I go home today, and and unprovoked, meaning, you know, they're, they're not trying to get a dessert out of me or something else, just unprovoked, one of my kids comes up and says, you know, Daddy, I just want to tell you I love you today. I'm probably not going to respond to them by saying, well, I really need to think about that. I really need to find some way of telling you something. No, I'm going to say, you know what, thank you, I love you too. Love encourages love. That that prompts that response. But not my kids. Maybe one of your kids would disobey you and do something hateful and mean, and you walk in and you just wonder what in the world, how did they, I mean, they must have been playing this for weeks. Is your natural impulse just to pick them up and say, oh, I love you right now? (laughs) No, it's not. And so what does Jesus say? He says, listen, your heart and my heart, along with our world, have been corrupted and turned upside down. What's the gospel do? It turns it right side up and it changes things. And the reason we can turn the other cheek, the reason we can love those who hate us, the reason we can watch that scene on the beach and get on our knees and pray not only for the families of those who just lost their loved ones, who were martyred for the faith, but pray for those who did it, is because Jesus got on the cross and died for you and me and our wickedness and our lostness and our sin and our depravity. And he turned our life around. And friends, if we want to see the world change, then, then we need to change. And live according to the gospel that we preach. And so what happens here is this, this crowd gets stirred up. But I, I love this, this observation they make. And it's what I want to leave you with today. These men have turned the world upside down. <laughs> And Luke doesn't record it, but I think at that point, that's when Paul and others could say, Amen. Except there's a correction. We haven't done it. The gospel has. And so in considering that today, I want to leave you with this question. Last point in your notes there. How will you change the world for Christ? For for those of you who indeed have repented and placed your faith in Christ, how, how will you change the world for Christ? Long before William Carey got on that ship, He was a missionary in a shoe store. And he understood that his business was advancing the kingdom and that he sold shoes to pay expenses. So whatever's on your paycheck, that's the means through which God is providing that you might be a witness for his name. So how will you do that? 
Christian, I hope you see today your, your calling to be a missionary where you are. Whatever your workplace is, you're called to be a missionary there, to, to share with people about the gospel. That may mean this week that you say, hey, I would love to buy you lunch, and you tell me all the things you don't like about Christians in church. <laughs> it, it works with adults too, by the way. But you're a missionary there. Parents, do you realize that's, that's who we are to our children, grandparents, uncles, aunts? We're, we're missionaries to these kids. If you think that bringing your kids to church for an hour or two a week is somehow going to counter what they hear in the world and what they're taught on a daily basis. Friends, you're deceived. Your home is a mission field where you are to proclaim the gospel to your family. And one of the greatest opportunities you and I have to proclaim the gospel to our families is to admit our faults to them and to talk to them about how much our hope is in the gospel. And so I've said it before, I'll say it again, I hope my kids' response to the gospel is rooted in their understanding that their father failed a lot, and their father sinned a lot, but when he failed and when he sinned, sometimes he got it right and went to him and said, I have sinned, and I am repenting before you and before God, and the only hope I have is the blood of Jesus, and son, daughter, the only hope you have is the blood of Jesus as well. And friends at this church today, the only hope that you have is the blood of Jesus. And you look around our world today, and you're disheartened and you're discouraged. Friends, the only hope that our world has today is the blood of Jesus. And the means through which God has said he will save many is through us sharing with them about the blood of Jesus. And so I want to pray, and I'd ask you to pray as well that that is what we would share about with them. Father God, we thank you for the blood of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us through it. And Father, I pray, I pray today for any here who's, who's heard about that, who's thought about that, but never responded, God, that you would overwhelm them. And Lord, that you would open up their ears. And that, that's, that's the real miracle, Lord, is when the gospel just opens up a mind to understand and to respond. And, Father, that they would repent and have faith. Lord, I pray for any who, who maybe consider joining arms with us in membership here as, as we are committed to take this gospel to our community and to the world. If this is the, the church that you are calling them to, uh, Lord, I pray, God, that they would join with us, Lord. Perhaps some today in response to your word, maybe you've brought a face, a name to their, their mind, their heart of someone who is lost, someone who needs the gospel. Lord, maybe somebody who they've shared their story with about their faith a lot of times. Lord, would you help us to share your story and your word, trusting that that's the only thing that's going to save them. And Lord, not everybody's going to respond to that. Everybody certainly didn't in Acts 17. Oh, Lord, we pray, though, that they would. And we pray, God, that you would do what you do, that you would change their life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.